0: Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. Our study this week in the theological seminar of the air is called The Second Main Branch of Theology, which deals with the life, person, and work of Lord Jesus Christ, the second person in the Godhead, Christology dealing properly with Christ. And today we're going to talk for a while about the life of Christ and the miracles of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Word of God. This series of theological studies, of course, they're always Bible-based and true to the Bible, and rather unique, and then on this broadcast, we take the position that where the Bible says one thing, and scholarship says another, to quote Billy Sunday, quote, scholarship can go plumb to the devil, unquote. That is what we're dealing here primarily with, is what the Bible says about itself, not what it is presumed to teach. And given what the Bible says about these matters, now, are we interested in getting a partial view, or a halfway point of view, or a biased partisan point of view in these matters, but rather our call to relate all Scripture to all Scripture, where the Scriptures speak of the Scriptures? Uh, it's quite the style these days to give half-truths, and two-thirds truths, and three-quarter truths. We often hear people talking about what is the Gospel, and then running to the Gospel of the Kingdom of Heaven, and trying to equate it with the Gospel that Paul preached, which is nonsense. We hear people talking about getting uh, saved, by Acts 2.38, when there isn't a Christian or Gentile in the bunch, but all Jews and Jewish proselytes. And so we have an element in confusion, a maximum amount of confusion these days, even where the Scripture is quoted. But this is largely due to the fact that the people who hear the Scripture is quoted do not take the trouble or time to look them up and see what they have to say about themselves. And this, of course, should be done. And we hope in these broadcasts that you're taking time out to write down the references, and if you do not have time to look them up, at least you will make note of them and mark them down and study them at your own convenience. We're now dealing with the Christology, the life, person, work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This will be the longest subject in theology proper that we will study, taking up uh, 34 broadcasts. A uh, lesson to deal with the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the relationship of the Son to the Father, the humanity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the character of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the commandments of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the intercessory work of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the results of his return. After all, the main theme in the Bible is a kingdom, and God's king is the Lord Jesus Christ. The main subject of the Bible is authority, and God's authority is Jesus Christ. The main subject of the Bible is an authoritative kingdom. And, of course, the gospel that Paul preached only allowed a sinner to be born again into this kingdom by the new birth. The main argument had to do with the matters of authority. And if you'll pick up a newspaper, any newspaper, printed by anybody, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, you'll find that 80% of the news items deal with arguments over authority. Man pretends that the newspaper has replaced the Bible, and yet he pretends the Bible discusses one thing, and the newspapers discuss something else. They both discuss the same issue from two different viewpoints. The argument in the world is who gets to run who, who gets voted in, who gets voted out, who's incumbent. Who's coming in? What will they do when they get in? Do they have the power to do it? Were they caught doing something wrong? Who has the power to decide? After all, 90% of any news item deals with authority. Will he get in him, him the first draft or the second draft? How much will he get? Who will pay him? Will he break records? Has he got the power to break records? That's all a newspaper is, presenting arguments for and against different authorities. So quite naturally, 150... Uh, centuries before newspapers were invented, the Lord discussed the matter thoroughly and completed it in the Bible. God's authority is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. So when we study Christology proper, we're studying the very center and heart of the Bible, the person and work of God's King Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, unto whom all power where's your authority in heaven and in earth is given. His authority is of such a nature, the Bible says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bend, every head shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we say preachers have a great uh, weight on our side and a great uh, blessing on our behalf in that when we consider it, uh, someday we're going to convert every person we preach to. That is, we have a, an advantage there that unsaved preachers don't have and that Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius couldn't imagine. Muhammad, Confucius, and the Buddha never thought they'd see the day when everybody would be a convert to their religion. But we say preachers who believe the Word of God know that eventually, that is either here or at the judgment seat of Christ or at the white throne judgment, every knee shall bend, every head shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Buddha is not the Lord and Muhammad is not the Lord. And the Rockefellers and Kennedys are not the Lord, and the H E and W is not the Lord. Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we speak about as a Christology studying the life and personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're dealing with the very heart of Revelation itself, for God said, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And it was Jesus Christ himself who made this momentous confession, or monstrous, I guess, if you're an atheist or an agnostic. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. In heaven and in earth. Not even the devil can operate without the permissive will and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even the governments of this world, run run by men like Caligula Nero and the half-diseased, half-mad emperor Tiberius, could hold their throne and their sway without the permissive will and power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Or, as Paul so succinctly puts it, the powers that be are ordained of God. Now we deal with the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, the only man who ever lived, who had four parts to his life. He had his pre incarnate state as God, existing in the Trinity. He was before all things. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 tells us, before all things. He's the head of all things. By him, all things consist. And all things were created by him, visible or invisible, whether they be thrones, principalities, or powers. They were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and he is head over all things. In his pre-incarnate state, the Lord Jesus Christ was back in the confines and the halls of eternity with God the Father. In the second part of his life, he was born of a virgin and begotten as the son of man with two natures, and lived on this earth a sinless life and died a sinless death. In the third part of his life, after rising from the dead, he inhabited the body of the believer and the person of the Holy Spirit, who is said to be the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, who comes to testify and magnify of Jesus Christ himself, John 15 and 16, and guides and leads the believer into all truth. In the fourth part of his life, he will return to this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the King Messiah, and sit down on the Davidic Messianic Jewish throne of the political kingdom in Palestine. This makes the Lord Jesus Christ Superman, and not Superstar, but Superman in the ultimate sense, in the sense in which no bionic man or flap-doodle-onic woman could ever possibly be. Before creation's morning, back in the confines of eternity, he was the greatest creator that ever lived, the greatest artist that ever lived, the greatest musician that ever lived. His creation manifests his works. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Before his incarnate existence, he was the greatest writer that ever lived, having written 39 Old Testament books by 24 different authors through a period of 1,500 years on three different continents. When he came to this earth and walked upon this earth, he was the greatest doctor that ever lived, healing without splints, compresses, oxygen tents, or hospitals. The greatest preacher that ever lived. He said, a greater than Jonah's ear. The greatest lover that ever lived. Loving us and giving himself to die for our sins when we were enemies of God. We are reconciled by the death of his son. He was the greatest preacher that ever lived, the greatest lover that ever lived, the greatest soldier that ever lived. Keitel and von Manstein and Monteuffel and Kesselring and Rommel and Eisenhower and Montgomery and General Patton and MacArthur and Jeb Stewart and Jackson and Charlemagne and Napoleon couldn't hold a candle to him. He went through 33 years of his life knowing he was going to face a miserable death at the hand of torturers, knowing he was going to die a brutal, cruel death on the cross, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, and never wavered to the right hand of the left hand until the day they nailed him up. You talk about enduring hardness, a good soldier, brother, that's it. Then he rose from the dead. In his present life, he's the greatest teacher that ever lived, being able to teach and guide and all truth. He's the greatest detective that ever lived, the Holy Spirit being able to track any sinner down and tree him. And bring him under the bond of the covenant and find out his sin and convict him of sin and righteousness and judgment. In the present dispensation, he's the greatest politician that ever lived. He can open doors that politicians can't open. He closes doors that nobody can close. Then someday he'll come back to this earth as king of kings and lord of lords. When he comes back, he'll be the greatest priest that ever lived, the high priest of our profession, the greatest king that ever lived, the greatest monarch and the greatest dictator the world has ever seen, ruling this earth with a rod of iron. The Bible says at this time, The knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the small piece of territory, the Genghis Khan and Tamerlane and Bybars and Kublai Khan and Charlemagne and Napoleon and Adolf Hitler carved out for themselves, really will not amount to a great deal. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, Asia, Africa, Europe, North, Central, South America, Arctic and the Antarctic and the islands of the sea will be subject to his name. The birth of Jesus Christ, on this earth in the second part of his life was by the Virgin Mary, and is recorded in Matthew and Luke and prophesied in Genesis 3.15. He was circumcised at the age of eight days in Luke 2.21, according to the prescriptions of the Jewish law, which is called the law of the Lord. Mary, recognizing the fact that she was a sinner and needed to have a purification for her sins, went down to the temple in Luke 2.21 and offered a purification for her sins as a sinner. This was the law of God, Leviticus chapter 12 which is said to be the law of the Lord in Luke chapter 2, showing that Mary plainly confesses that she is a sinner exactly like anybody else and offers a purification for her sin at the circumcision of, the birth of her child in Luke 2.21. Jesus was then taken to the temple at Jerusalem when he was 12 years of age, Luke 2, verse 41 to 48. His early years of his life were spent as a carpenter in Nazareth, Mark 6.3. And, of course, the 12 silent years of his life have been mimicked and... Oh, made fun of and uh, parodied on by a number of writers in what we call the pseudepigrapha, the false writings of so-called lost books of the Bible, which are not books of the Bible at all. They are what they are called pseudepigrapha, false writings, where people profess to know something about the twelve years of Jesus growing up as a child. We must remember the silences of God are as inspired as what he has to say, and the omissions in the Bible are just as inspired as the editions. Where the Holy Spirit is silent, he intended to be silent for a reason. And for this reason, twelve years of Jesus Christ's life are passed over in silence. And then from then on, from the time he is twelve, eighteen years later, till he appears public at the ministry of John the Baptist, nothing is said more than that is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We may uh, uh, theorize about these matters and uh, let the imagination wander and dream up various types of fancies. But the Holy Spirit has chosen to keep silent regarding these matters, and where God is silent, let all the earth be silent before him. Jesus began his earthly ministry in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, a period that lasted about six months. He was uh, baptized by John the Baptist, and immediately following his baptism, he was driven in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. We'll talk about this more later when we get into the details of the life of Christ and the details of his ministry. He began his ministry in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and this lasted about six months. His first miracle was performed at Cana, of Galilee, John 2 1. His second miracle, the healing of the nobleman's the son, was performed in Capernaum, John chapter 4, verse 46, John chapter 4, verse 54. Now, these are the first miracles recorded, performed in this uh, Galilean ministry. And the second stage of Jesus' ministry covered a period of six to eight months in Capernaum and Galilee where he performed miracles, healed the sick, and preached the gospel. The third stage of his life was what we call the later Galilean ministry, lasting about a year in and about Galilee, and crowds followed him, and he preached the Sermon of the Mount there, the material recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In the next stage of his ministry, the Pharisees hounded him up and down the country to seek his life, while Jesus traveled about Capernaum, Phoenicia, Bethsaida, Caesarea Philippi, and finally re-entered Galilee. In the last six months, we find him uh, teaching, preaching, and traveling in the Judean ministry. And the last week, on Palm Sunday, we had the Last Supper, Gethsemane, the trials, and his death by the cross. Three days later, according to prophecy, Jesus rises from the dead with 500 eyewitnesses to testify to the facts thereof. And 40 days after the resurrection, he ascends visibly and bodily into heaven, seen by 12 disciples after 40 days of eating, sleeping, talking, and fellowshipping with men in the flesh. Now that is a brief summary of the life of Christ, and of course we'll talk about this much more in detail when we get in the detailed accounts the various passages to deal with the doctrines of Christ, when we speak especially of the humanity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the character of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the commands of Christ, and the miracles of Christ. Suffice it to say that his earthly life lasts exactly three and a half years, with his birth coming at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, not naturally not at Christmas time. December 25th is the birthday of Baal, the sun god, and uh, other Phoenician idols and Roman and Greek gods, and Christ's birth is obviously in the fall at the Feast of Tabernacles when God comes to tabernacle in the flesh. The Jews call this time of the year Yom Kippur, the beginning of the new year, although their religious year begins on the first uh, month, their secular year, uh, secular calendar, begins in the seventh month between September and October. This ministry then runs a half a year from September, October to March, April, and then runs through three Passovers with the Lord Jesus Christ himself being the fourth Passover. These Passovers are listed in the Gospel according to John, and in John you will find four Gospels mentioned, or gosp- uh, four uh, Feast of the Passover mentioned, and in John's Gospel you'll find the fourth Passover, beginning around John 12, 13, and 14, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself thus clearly indicating that Christ's ministry begins in the fall and ends in the spring, an exact period of 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, to match the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation and match the 42 months that the Antichrist will preach on this earth in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 to 4. Now about the miracles of Jesus. A miracle of the setting aside of a lower law by a higher law. Lower law is the natural physical law of Earth and nature which the unsaved men have to abide by, and only can God do things contrary to this law. Although scientists like the play god, a typical play, play god, uh, let's play god today, is the getting of rockets up to heaven and overcoming the law of gravity by setting in law a higher law, the law of propulsion. You see... In other words, what the science uh, scientists uh, profess to have found and talk about, they like to call miracles. And consequently, when they read in the Bible of a genuine miracle, they like to pretend it was merely a scientific phenomena that the poor, dumb, stupid people of the first century didn't understand. And if they'd been as smart as we are, oh yes, baby, there's a lot that goes on in the colleges these days. They would have understood it. Now, to do this, the unsaved scientists have gone back in the Bible and made hash of it by enforcing their stupidity upon the Holy Spirit. Some of these stupid scientists have tried to tell us that Moses didn't see a bush burning. He merely saw the heat wave of the desert going up in front of a bush in the desert sun. Fantastic egotism, wouldn't you say? What is a man sitting in an air-conditioned room in America in the 20th century drinking Coke out of a Coke machine doing, talking about heat waves coming up from a desert bush and instructing a man who has herded sheep on the backside of a desert for 40 years. It's amazing how smart some of these stuffed shirts think they are. Let me have these educated asses who said that Jonah couldn't have been swallowed by a whale because the whale's stomach wasn't big enough or the throat wasn't big enough to go down, etc., etc. After failing to tell you that the eminent whale authority, Charles Bell Emerson, has already given case after case after case where bodies have been recovered from the stomachs of whales and even sharks. And some of them still alive. I mean, there's nothing like education to make a fool out of you, along some lines. Then we have these educated idiots who talk about Jesus walking on the water. It wasn't really he walking in the water. It was the fact that he was walking in ice floes and stepping from ice cake to ice cake. You see? Which brings up an interesting question. Why would a commercial fisherman who worked in Galilee for more, more than 20 years, why wouldn't he know you could do that, if you could do it? And even a more interesting question, how do you get walking from ice cake to ice cake when the wind is boisterous and the waves and wind are interfering with the walk? That's some ice cake you have there, Sonny. So we always have these educated idiots who think that 20 years of formal education equips them to speak intelligently. Many of these fools think that Jesus Christ merely swooned when he went into the tomb and then revived later which brings us some interesting problems. If he revived, how'd he unwrap the bandages around himself when he was wrapped up like a mummy, dummy? <laughs> this also brings up another interesting problem. How'd he get out of the tomb? If he was so weak, he'd swoon from loss of blood. Yes, there are all kinds of things going on. There's, just, there's always just a little goody, and oldy, but goody for every man who thinks he's smart enough to correct God. Now, miracles are setting a high side of the lower law by a higher law. For example, my watch runs clockwise which should go without explanation, it runs left to right. However, I can pull out the top of this thing in my stopwatch and move it right to left. I set aside a lower law by a higher law. That is, the creator of this watch, the designer and engineer, put a building mechanism whereby the natural law could be reversed. Now, why would anybody who knew that And any eighth grader knows that. Why would a college professor think that the creator of the universe didn't build into the universe some laws that he could use to go by laws that were also built in? In plain words, when the earth ceases to rotate or slows in its rotation around the sun the days of Joshua, and the sun stands still in haste not to go down about a whole day, why would any fool think that if it was a design or an engineering mind behind it, that it wouldn't create the mechanism with building laws that could reverse the mechanism. Unless you were dishonestly, or intellectually dishonest, or irrational, or just plain stupid. So you see, a miracle in the Bible is a normal thing for the author of the Bible, who is the author of the miracle. If Jesus truly performed miracles, then he was God manifest in the flesh, and so that's why they're anxious to prove that he didn't really perform miracles. He just fooled folks. The Lord Jesus performed miracles not to show off or entertain, but to prove his deity and cause men to believe upon him, his message, and his person. Read John 2.11 and John 20, verse 31. Jesus performed credible miracles over nature. He's still a tempest. You don't have a meteorologist who can do it. He calmed the wind and the water. Did anybody do it in the Johnstown flood? Let's see you stop a tidal wave moving 400 miles an hour. He even walked on the water, Matthew 8:26, Matthew 14:25, which is one of the most commonly disbelieved miracles in the Bible and a constant butt of ridicule and source of ridicule for people who like to say a fellow thinks he's God and they always draw cartoons of him walking on the water. You have no idea the things involved in walking on the water because there's more water over your head out of the solar system than there is in both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And some of you folks are going to have to walk on the water someday. Do you know that? There's always more there than meets the eye. Jesus performed miracles over devils. Mark 5:12, 5, 5:13. 5, when the natural man tries to do it, he has to bring out a wooden cross or a silver cross and go through some mumbo-jumbo. Lord, just tell him to get out. Jesus performed miracles over diseases. He healed people who had no faith in Mark chapter 6. The modern healer cannot perform a miracle, so he keeps saying, only believe, release your faith, turn your faith loose. Jesus performed miracles on people who didn't believe. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 8, And while he healed them, he marveled at their unbelief. That isn't all. He performed miracles over lepers, lame people, causing dumb to hear, fevers to depart, the eyes of the blind to be open, And the cases that he healed were public demonstrations without an organ or a tent or lights or a build-up or a collection. Jesus performed miracles over death. He raised the dead contrary to all human law that says a dead person must stay dead. He didn't go in the hospital and rub somebody's heart that had a cataleptic fit. He didn't go in the, heart and, in the hospital and rub somebody's heart and get it going again and say the fellow rose from the dead. He'd go out in the graveyard somewhere. They'd been down in the dirt for four days and pull him out of there. He wasn't like these healers that go around saying, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and then they claim they raised somebody the dead because they got a little baby boy breathing again who quit breathing for two hours. No, never mind the professional showman stuff. He'd go out in the graveyard Wednesday and pull out the fella that you buried Sunday morning. Seen anybody try that one lately, honey? You see anybody put any ears back on? You remember the Garden of Gethsemane when he was attacked? He... Peter pulled out a sword and cut off Malchus's ear, and Christ touched the ear, and it came back on the stump? You remember that one? I bet you haven't seen that one, your favorite faith healer lady now, have you? Don't get mad. Where's your sense of humor? Our Lord's miracles were restrained and are completely believable. His miracles performed openly in the presence of many witnesses and recorded by divine inspiration with no tricks attached to them. The life of Jesus Christ on this earth can be summarized in the words of Acts 10.38. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The Lord Jesus left the Christian an example that he should follow in his suffering and patient affliction. For Simon Peter says, Even here were were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Were to walk as Christ walked, 1 John 2.6, He came to do God's will, so it's our business to find out what the will of God is and do it, too. The will of God for the Christian in this dispensation is found mainly in the Pauline epistles. And if you want to know what the will of God is for your life, give Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 6, your prayerful attention. The will of God for the Christian in this life is given to the greatest Christian that ever lived, the greatest follower of Christ, the Apostle Paul. And he said these things were given to him that he might be a pattern, a pattern, to them that should hereafter believe on Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now we've talked in this lesson about the miracles of Jesus Christ and the life of Christ. Of course, we haven't gone into any kind of detail. We've given a very broad outline, a very broad survey of these matters. And next week, at this same time, we'll begin uh, our third lesson on Christology, and our third lesson on Christology will deal with the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about how this virgin birth was foretold in the Old Testament, about the historic fulfillment of the prophecy. About the virgin birth as taught in the scripture, about the purpose of the virgin birth, the importance of the doctrine of the virgin birth, the significance of the virgin birth, and the objections to the virgin birth, which are raised by educators and teachers in the National Council of Churches and the National Education Association. Uh, the attacks on the virgin birth of Christ, carried on to educators and preachers, is legend. It continues day in and day out. Nobody has equal time to answer any of it. No man has ever been granted equal time on the air or in a newspaper to answer the constant perennial attacks on the deity and virgin birth of Jesus Christ that go on 24 hours a day in every city in the United States. We'll talk about these matters more next week when we study the virgin birth, and then we'll take up the great study on the deity of Christ as taught in the Word of God. As we've said before and we'll say again, our studies in the Theological Seminar are confined to the Bible statements about itself, what the Bible says about itself. And where these things come in contrast with what men teach, we'll draw out the contrast very clearly and very plainly and very graphically. Our purpose here in mentioning these other matters is not to, not to down somebody purposely uh, negatively, but by positive contrast, show you the difference between divine authority and absolute truth, and the traditions of men, which are the results of pagan speculation, and savage imagination. So we've given this broadcast what the Bible says about itself and not merely what it is presumed to teach. Next week on this broadcast, we will deal with one of the great doctrines of the Bible, one of the great fundamentals of the faith, the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.